Welcome to the Nutritional Outlook Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grebo, Editor-in-Chief of Nutritional Outlook Magazine. And I'm Sebastian Kravitz, Editor. We're your podcast hosts. Nutritional Outlook is a multimedia publishing brand and leading informational resource for manufacturers of dietary supplements, healthy foods, and natural products. In this episode, we are interviewing industry trade association leaders to discuss the recent proposals for mandatory product listing put forth by the Senate in two recent bills. Industry leaders will share with us their positions on these proposals and what mandatory product listing could mean for the future of the dietary supplements industry. Join us as we interview some key industry leaders and get their opinions on this divisive topic. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll be right back. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truestearumntwk.com. Hello, podcasters. As many of you know, on April 26, U.S. Senators Dick Durbin and Mike Braun introduced Senate Bill S-4090, the Dietary Supplement Listing Act of 2022. The bill would require all companies selling dietary supplement products in the U.S. to submit certain information about their products into a federal FDA product listing database, including information such as product names, a list of ingredients, an electronic copy of the label, allergen statements, and structure function claims. Once a company's product is listed, FDA would issue the company an identification number for their product. And while the dietary supplement industry has debated the pros and cons of a mandatory product listing database in the U.S. for years, suffice it to say that Senate Bill S-4090 has brought those debates publicly to the surface now that legislation is here. Subsequently, on May 17, the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pension released its discussion draft of the FDA Safety and Landmark Advancement Act, or FDA-LSA, which is a package for user fee reauthorization. In this bill, the committee includes its own language on mandatory product listing. Its inclusion in the discussion draft creates a ticking clock and a very real vehicle through which a mandatory product listing may be implemented. So in this episode... Industry trade association leaders will share their views on mandatory product listing, or MPL as we'll call it, the language of the bills, and what the associations plan to do to advance an outcome that will be favorable for the dietary supplement industry, in their opinion. We should also note that because this is very much a developing story, there may be some new updates that we're not able to cover at the time of this recording. We always encourage our listeners to visit NutritionalOutlook.com to read our ongoing coverage of this story. In the meantime, we hope you'll enjoy our in-depth conversation with Daniel Fabricant, President and CEO of the Natural Products Association, Steve Mister, President and CEO of the Council for Responsible Nutrition, Duffy Mackay, Senior Vice President of Dietary Supplements at the Consumer Healthcare Products Association, Lauren Israelson, President of the United Natural Products Alliance, and Michael McGuffin, President of the American Herbal Products Association. This, this discussion will be divided into two parts, uh, so stay tuned for part two coming soon. Let's begin the discussion with Daniel Fabricant, President and CEO of the Natural Products Association. 
Thank you for joining us today, Dan. I appreciate your time. Always, Sebastian. Great to be with you and Jen, and uh, let's dive right in. Terrific. Well, um, to start, um, I know NPA has been very clear about its opposition to this new bill. Um, so I wonder if you could just kind of explain to our listeners the primary reasons why NPA opposes not only this bill, but any move to create a mandatory product listing for dietary supplements. Yeah, Sebastian, it's a bit of a weird optic. Um, when we first heard that this was, you know, we've seen the budget request for a few years from FDA to get either labels or now this particular budget request was specific to a listing, a mandatory listing. And we had some conversations with Senator Durbin's office going back to October of, of last year, 21. And, you know, the, the, the things were the things they floated before that, you know, it should be it should be mandatory. And if you don't, you know, and FDA has the ability to decide if it's listed who doesn't. And it, it just gives it an administrative tool to FDA that really prevents them from doing their job. And not that they're doing a great job on some of the things they're supposed to do now. Um, they're not inspecting the regular frequency. They're not enforcing AIs. But specific to this proposal, the ability for them to say, hey, we don't agree with an ingredient status like we saw on NAC or like we've seen for four years now on CBD where they talk out of two sides of their mouth. They go see Congress, they go, oh, no, no, we would never dream of taking away CBD. Meanwhile, you go to their website, it says CBD is an unlawful dietary ingredient. So I think the notion that on any master product listing, they wouldn't list a CBD and NAC is really our primary concern. Well, why is that a concern? Well, the concern is that retailers are going to set their shelves using that listing, right? They're going to go, hey, you're not on the list. We don't sell you. That's a problem for those those types of ingredients. It's also the problem for the future that FDA can misuse it, uh, like we saw with NAC. Uh, we don't want to take that lightly. So I think that's the primary driver. Um, in this latest iteration, what came out of the Senate in the discussion draft, it also had that added prohibited act for selling something that's not that they don't agree with you is a dietary ingredient. You go, well, wait a second. Um, that's that's a problem because we've seen them use that language on everything from probiotics to again NAC, CBD, botanicals. So it's really it's it kind of it was good in some ways because I think it clarified for people that yeah this was really the intent all along is to cut those things out those things that FDA doesn't agree with. Now they can just kind of redline through them and, and they're gone. So um, and there's also the bioterrorism component. Um, I don't understand why this is, has to be public facing. We give the agency plenty of information now. A lot of it we can hold back as confidential commercial information. I don't think that anybody should know every point in the supply and distribution chain of manufacture. Uh, that makes life really easy for if somebody didn't want to taint the food supply. They go, okay, the packages go from this manufacturing facility to this distribution center, to that distribution center, to these retailers. It really, and having that all at one click and one sitting at your keyboard, a lot of good reasons not to have that. And also I think so much of that is really for the plaintiff's bar, right? We haven't seen anything on state preemption. Like if we're going to give FDA a new tool, so what then the states can go if FDA decides not to enforce, which we've seen that in the case, then we're going to get sued in, in all 50 states, especially places like California, where we've been, you know, really hit hard by the plaintiff's bar out there. So there's really nothing in it. I mean, at, at its core, Sebastian, there's nothing in it for the industry. What good is it? And so if we're talking about reforms to the industry, it can't be, I mean, you look at the safety record in the industry, you look at the, 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 especially during the pandemic, how many people use the industry to stay healthy. And now all it is, is, Hey, let's, let's chop a leg out from under the industry. Why? Nobody seems to be able to explain that. Except they go transparency, transparency. It's like transparency in this instance just seems to be motivated to the people who are never going to support the industry or like the industry. To get them to do that is, is fool's error. Um, you know, not everybody is going to like you, but 80% of the country uses the products every day. I think we're doing pretty well. 
And Dan, you know, you mentioned the state uh, state's plaintiff's bar. So how do you imagine like that could happen? So like the state AGs could look and see this company is not listed, but they should be and then go after that company. Right. For example, let's say you turn your you turn you send it into FDA, right? Um, sometimes FDA is much like the DMV is they take a little too long to do things, right? So you send in your materials for a listing. Now, let's say it was just a new flavor. A new flavor already is appearing on the shelves, but FDA hasn't uploaded it into the system. Well, then some plaintiff's part go, oh, my God, you've got this product out there that's not on the list. And all this is a new flavor. And now you're getting sued because you defrauded consumers in whatever state because you didn't follow federal law when in actuality you did. But there was a, a literally just an administrative entanglement, and which happens frequently with the government. And we just saw it on the warning letters with, with Glambia, right, where they sent the wrong warning letter to the wrong company. Glambia didn't serve a warning letter. They got one. We were able to work with Glambia. Their board members get it fixed. But, you know, these are the sorts of things that... that you know, the government's not infallible. So you have to, we have to have protections. And the fact that we don't in any of, whether it was Durbin Braun or what came out of the Senate in the FDA, SLA, I'm trying, I don't like saying FEDESLA or that just doesn't sound right, but let's just say FDA, SLA, um, the discussion draft. Uh, yeah, it's, it could really be misused. And there aren't any, you know, the, the thing is, if the safeguards were there, they'd be specifically spelled out there, right? They would say, hey, nothing in this act will allow the secretary to remove an ingredient that isn't the subject of final agency action, right? We heard that along with NAC. Well, this is a final agency action, similar for CBD. This is a final agency action. So, okay, then fine. And that, that, that would give you a safe harbor, but we haven't seen any language here before that, that would present that. Got it. And Dan, what about NPA's membership? Would you say there is unanimous opposition to creating a mandatory product listing database? Well, I mean, I'm never going to say it's unanimous, right? We've got a lot of members, big membership, and there may be some people that support this or some concept of this. And I think that's the big thing is, okay, what's been proposed, I think unanimously, yeah, people, what's been proposed is damning to the industry. Um, given the tens of thousands of emails we put up there, we know other groups like Alliance for Natural Health, Organic Consumers Association, a, a, a really a broad range of folks, really, you know, not necessarily one specific archetype. Um, you know, there's a lot of that in this for the industry. So I think the folks that, that like having the freedom in the marketplace that, that see the industry as really beneficial, um, they, they're, yeah, they're opposed to it. I, I don't understand the folks that are in favor to it. I think they're speaking for a very, very small part of the industry. And like I said, some of them have gotten very quiet recently with the, the Senate draft out there. <laughs> you don't hear much from them defending that. And we wouldn't be in this position of the Senate draft without their support of previous iterations of things like Durbin Braun. So in some ways, they got us into this mess, if you will. Um, and it's no surprise that, you know, Senator Durbin is very formidable. You know, I've been at this quite a while. I started at NPA in 2004 and then left for a few years when the FDA came back, as you know. And Senator Durbin has always had the industry in his crosshairs, always, always wanted to. You know, he, he, he says, oh, I take a multivitamin every day. Then he's on the Senate floor calling, you know, Senator Hatch's nemesis because of this issue. You know, this, is, this is personal. And so with that understanding, um, someone personally wants to harm the industry. Uh, I think everybody should take an affront to that, uh, even if you aren't necessarily 100% opposed to some of the ideas there. And that's the other thing I think, I think Jen and Sebastian is why wasn't there a longer negotiation? Why weren't there more like a more constructive conversation about reforms? Uh, I've heard Michael McGuffin say that like, Hey, look, what, what are we actually trying to fix here? Um, and I think it's very well said. I think, you know, we're just this rush. Oh, we have to do it now. 
why. Um, it seems that the Russia has gotten us some really bad proposals. Like I said, the, the language got worse from Durban Braun to what the Senate put out. So that should be a, you know, a word to the wise of people of, hey, uh, to some people, I think it was a welcome to Washington moment. I don't think, I don't think we were surprised that that happened. The language got worse. I, I imagine when you talked to Michael McGuffin, he probably wasn't surprised. I think a lot of us weren't, you know, like, hey, this is, you know, you got to be careful who you negotiate with and when you negotiate. Don't negotiate with yourselves as many people did in this instance. It really created a, a huge problem in the industry. So I wonder if you could talk about the steps that um, NPA has taken since the bill was introduced to drum up support for the association's position. We know that NPA has been doing a lot of grassroots work. And so how about you kind of describe what's going on there? Sure, Sebastian. Yeah, I mean, we're always very public facing. It's our job, right? We are the, the oldest and largest association. We do have both the, you know, the manufacturers, but we also the retail components. So there is that link to the consumer. So many of, obviously, our grassroots are up and running. But really a big part of the way the word got out are our member companies, their lists. They're sending our updates, our alerts to their lists. That's really been huge. Uh, can't thank those folks enough. The folks like, you know, our board members, I know I've done that across the board. Some of them have, you know, I, I, I'm a little, I think I'm a little older than you guys. and I'm not maybe the best in social media. You guys are a little more handy on the media side, but uh, we've had some great responses social media wise. We've had folks, um, you know, some of our members connected us with the folks like Price Plow, who are amazing at social media. Um, uh, Mike DiMaggio at New Triple uh, connected one of his athletes, one of his influencers who has literally millions of followers um, to, he, he on his own went out there, did a, a brief video on his Instagram saying, hey, write your members of Congress, uh, tell them you don't support this. And it was, it was really tremendous to see that. So we're trying to get the word out every way we can. We're working with folks who, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of folks who are, who are in opposition to this. Uh, a lot of other groups, like I said, uh, you know, ABBA, um, A&H, you know, and while we all have different avenues, different areas of strength, I think on this one, you see, you see folks really come together and go, look, this, this has to, this has to stop um, right away, if not sooner. So, um, we're going to keep getting the word out. Obviously, we're meeting with members of Congress, meeting with different staffs, uh, committees of jurisdiction, leadership, anyone we can to just kind of explain the, explain the problems here, explain why we are opposed, um, you know, and, and what that means um, and, and what it should mean for them. I think, you know, look, it, a lot of calls, a lot of emails. Um, the folks on the Hill know that's they kind of look at those the same way they look at voting, right? It's a poll, right? It's like, wait, we've heard from 20,000 of our constituents that they don't like this that's going to give them a moment of pause. So we, we just want to tell people, even if you've already written to Congress once or called, do it again, keep doing it, get on your social media. It, it really is, you know, for, for those in the industry, uh, for those who have companies, it's their livelihood. But I think more to the point to consumers, it really can have, it just can have a huge catastrophic effect on their ability to, you know, have choice in the marketplace. It certainly drive up prices. Uh, and, you know, Michael did a great analysis on that. Um, you know, so why is that what we're looking for? What problem are we actually trying to solve? Um, that, that, that's where I think we've gotten the most attention. You've heard me say, and Jen, I think we first said it with you first when I was on the phone with you, that, you know, I don't recall any of the Colombian cartels in the 80s calling up the DEA going, hey, the, you know, the plane is going to land at this time at this location. So the notion that this tool is somehow going to get the bad guys is just, it's, it's a joke. And, you know, I, I wish people would put that to rest. And, you know, if, if there was a way to hit a reset button on this, that would be great, but I think it's a little too far down the road right now. Well, sort of uh, in that frame, Dan, so in your opinion, what are the chances of 
the bill actually passing. So it has a recent publication of a discussion draft uh, you know, of the FDA Safety and Landmark Advancements Act by the Senate Committee on the Health Committee made this a very real possibility? Sure. I mean, it, it, so it was, you know, we got to look at the whole field, right? All the four corners. So, you know, you get the House version and the Senate version. Fortunately, the House had their markup yesterday. It wasn't in there. So that's that's good news. So half of Congress doesn't have it in there. But the, the going concern has always been that the Senate kind of has driven this process the past five or four times and that they're going to drive it again this time. And, and, and I think that that's, that's very much a reality. Um, so what's in there now, we're, you know, we've certainly got some comments in and, and you know, ideally the, the whole thing, and there's no supplement reforms on the UFAS at all. It's all completely gone. When you think about it, it really makes no sense that we're on there. We're not, we're not medical products. We're not making disease claims. Now, if we want to talk that way, that we're curing and treating and mitigating diseases like medical products, okay, fine. But it seems, I don't understand why there's not more outrage about that. It's like, wait a second, you're going to throw us into basically a drug user fee program because it's a must pass. Um, that's, that, that's a bit weird politically, right? Like we shouldn't be, you know, you, you wouldn't have a, a bill about um, uh, horse farmers on a, you know, on a high-speed transportation bill, right? Kind of the same, you know, kind of the same thing. So anyway, um, so yeah, it, it is, there is a reality to it, Jennifer. Um, it could, and I don't know if anything, I, I don't know if the whole thing stays in. I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it really now, this is, this is why the grassroots are so important because the more folks are here from the grassroots, the more likely they are to be like, you know, this really, we don't need this in here, um, you know, or we need to come to the table with these groups and come up with what would be a reasonable solution, you know, because this really is FDA pushing this, um, you know, that language, that additional language on 201 is really FDA's language. We've seen that before. Um, so, you know, that's really what's being pushed is what FDA wants. And it's like, I have no idea why some of the industry think that they need to advocate for FDA. I think they're doing just fine on their own. Um, but, you know, realistically, that's really, that's really the, the stage right now is, 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 Hey, what's going to be, what's going to be better for those members of Congress, especially in the infant formula thing, right? Like how can you see how mis, just mismanaged the infant formula thing was by FDA? And now you're going to go, oh, I really think we should give new authority and new money. Bad, bad look, I think, for a lot of members of Congress. So I think we're going to keep spelling that out. And hopefully, you know, it seems to be making a difference. We know they're feeling the pressure. We'll see after this next round, when we get to the markup and everything else, how successful we've been. And Dan, you know, you've been an expert in this industry for a very long time. Um, and can you speak or tell listeners how in the past, you know, such grassroots efforts have been successful, you know, how they can really work? Can you provide a few examples of how that can happen? Sure. Probably one of my favorites was, um, well, two actually, and they were a pretty close timeline to each other. There was S3002 back in 2009. That was John McCain's version of something similar to this kind of pre-market and FDA gets to say what goes market or not. Um, this one, Senator Hatch was still around. He was amazing. Uh, you know, I can't say enough about, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that all of this is happening, you know, immediately after the passing of Senator Hatch is really unfortunately incredible, but I do think folks are, are, are taking advantage of that, if you will. Um, this, you know, we were able to get, in that instance, people were really just upset because McCain went on the floor and said some terrible things at the Senate floor, and we were able to get about 60,000 emails up to his office in a day, um, and so that really crippled his operation. He went to the, the stories, he went to Senator Hatch, the Senate floor the next day, and he said, hey, can you make this stop? 
and Senator Hatch said, when you pull your bill, I can make it stop any day you pull the bill, and that was it. So it can make a huge difference. Um, you know, some some issues like this one, it seems to be, it's a lot longer of a legislative kind of calendar, right? So it's taking, it's gonna, we're gonna be dealing with this for the next couple of weeks, if not a month, maybe two months. Um, you know, I remember we were working on FTC was trying to get new powers, uh, and, and that was a similar, a longer calendar. We just had to keep the pressure on every day and every day and every day to ensure that, you know, those powers weren't granted. And, and just it, that's really it. It's, it's, it's keeping up that flow of, hey, we heard from these people. We're, we're just continuing to hear from them. Um, it's important. The industry has to have its voice heard. We know that there's fragments of the industry uh, at the same time on something like this. You know. I, I it, again, the silence of certain folks who push the initial concept of NPL should tell people everything they need to know, right? Like this was only going to go too far. Uh, and now, you know, we've got to pull it back and, and that means all of us or it's really going to be, it's going to make things really very difficult for, for the industry at large. You know, considering the reality that, you know, we are going through this legislative process and, you know, the language is there and needs to be negotiated, you know, um, is MPA willing to come to the table and try to negotiate a more favorable bill? You know, is there a version of MPL or this bill that you can live with? Sure. And I think we always have been able to. I think that's the part that we warned the folks who were so pro-MPL not to jump out ahead of this because it wasn't the time, right? It wasn't the time to jump. Oh, yeah, we're in favor of this. We don't know what it looks like, but we're in favor of it. Would you buy a car that way, right? I mean, you would, hey, just sell me whatever you have on the lot. It doesn't matter, right? I mean, it's kind of the same thing. So we've always cautioned against that. Yeah, when we see things and we've asked for certain things, we go, look, what if we did this through, you know, a few years ago in facility registration, they amended facility registration where you had to give them your email address, right? And it was simple. FDA wrote a reg on it. No one thought twice about it. What if they did this similar? They said, hey, uh, when you register your facility, send us your labels too. I don't know that. Uh, and I haven't pulled our membership, but gee, that seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Instead of all this other, you know, and that, that sounds like one paragraph of language, not four pages of stuff that can only be used to be, you know, misleading and confusing. Um, you know, FDA can already get labels now on inspection. They should have some already. And, and really the architecture of a database, that should be an internal function, just like it was for food facility registration. So, I mean, if somebody, you know, and, and we've proposed things like that to the committee and, and Hopefully they'll come back and go, you know what, let's do it that way instead of all this, because, you know, you guys are really beating down on us with all these emails. Um, great. But we haven't seen that yet. And that's really, that's the other side of this. that people don't realize is they could have come up with a reasonable proposal like that too. They've heard us say that they've heard other groups say that, um, you know, tie it to structure function notices. There's, there's a, a, there are so many different ways to slice this that would be much less divisive. And again, if the goal is, Okay, let's say the goal, let's take people at their face, that the goal is to get FDA labels. Okay, those would meet that goal. Now, if the goal is something else, well, then people need to be honest about what that goal is. If that goal is to give FDA an administrative tool that's in effect pre-market approval, yeah, that's not going to work at all, right? I mean, that's where I think everyone is opposed to that. So that's really, so much of this is shrouded in people not being direct. Um, and, and that's the part we tell people is, look, we want to cut through it. We, we have to. That's our job here is cut through it. What does it really say? What does it really mean? You know, legislation can be, people go, oh, everything in Washington is, you know, it's word soup and it's too verbose. It doesn't have to be. Unfortunately, if we don't tell our members of Congress that, they're going to continue to operate that way. So that's why it's really important for folks get the word out, get their voice heard on this and say, hey, look, if all you want is labels, fine. 
here's how you do it. Get it with facility registration. Some things, you know, do, do the right thing versus if you're trying to say, hey, we want to find a way to eliminate, you know, they're never going to come out and tell us, right? We want a way to get rid of CBD or get rid of NAC or get rid of anything we didn't disagree with. But funny, that's what showed up in the bill. So, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gamesmanship going on here, unfortunately. We really are doing what we can to cut through it. And with everyone's support, with everyone's letters, with every email, uh, that helps kind of cut through the nonsense. Well, terrific, Dan. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us and our audience. And, uh, you know, we appreciate your time. Sam, Jen, thank you guys so much. And I uh, look forward to talking to you more about this issue, hopefully in a more positive light as this moves ahead. We will be following and... Best of luck to you and MP and all your endeavors. Yep. Next, we'll be talking to Steve Mister, President and CEO at the Council for Responsible Nutrition. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. It's good to be with you. Great. So Steve, you know, as Sierra in itself has noted, there's been some vocal opposition to S4090 since the bill was proposed, you know, as well as some opposition to creating a mandatory product listing. You know, some dietary supplement trade associations support NPL while others oppose it. So do you do you think that industry groups need to somehow get on the same page in order to negotiate favorable legislation and is this likely to happen if it doesn't you know what do you think might happen to the fate of the dietary supplement listing act of 2022 i think it would certainly be good if uh, the the associations could work together to try to find a uh, a unified position on this you know my feeling on this is that there are lots of forces that are pushing for something like mandatory listing or even more than mandatory listing. Uh, you know, we've seen the FDA ask for it several times in its budget request. And we know that there are uh, consumer organizations uh, and medical organizations out there arguing for something that allows FDA to have more transparency into the industry. So the reality is something is very likely to happen. It's much better if you're on the, the bus and helping to steer it and come up with a solution. Uh, and so I guess, you know, that would be my, uh, call to the industry is there are our forces much bigger than just the dietary supplement industry at work here. And it makes a lot more sense for the industry to say, what can we live with? And that's what CRN's approach has been, is how can we shape this in a way that industry can live with it? Uh, that makes much more sense than standing in front of the bus, uh, because you may get run over. And Steve, you know, it's you hear some opponents saying, you know, why do we have to push this through now? Like, why now? Can we take some more time to maybe work on this? Um, you know, can you address that in any way? Like, you know, is this some, will there ever be a, a more opportune time to uh, introduce a proposal like this in the industry? Well, you know, I guess I have several thoughts on that. First of all, this is not anything new. This is not, this has not been sprung on the industry. Uh, we started talking about mandatory listing uh, at our board level in 2018. Uh, we've been public since early 2019 that our board was supporting uh, some sort of uh, public mandatory registry. Uh, at, at that point, we didn't know exactly what it would look like. So this has been something that's been you know, over three years in the works. Uh, but this other idea that you know, why are we rushing for this? We're not rushing 
through this. We have been very carefully working towards something for some time. And we have an opportunity here because it's very hard to get Congress to pass anything these days. You know, the, the, the very hyper-partisan uh, environment here in Washington is just toxic to try to get something done. Uh, fortunately though, they, these user fee bills go through once every five years and they are what uh, Congress calls must pass legislation because FDA needs to enact these user fee bills to in order to get the, the funding from the drug side of, of, of this uh, industry uh, and to keep going. Without those user fee reauthorizations, um, the FDA starts sending out pink slips to its workers. So this is the opportunity because when you have these bills going through, they're not specific to just user fees for drugs. They open up the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act for regulation for, for amendment in lots of ways. And you can hop on that train and ride it because you know the bill is going to pass. Uh, otherwise, you know, as a standalone piece of legislation, it is going to be very hard to get through committee hearings, House, Senate on its own. So, you know, you're always looking for what's that train that you can get on and ride. In that vein, you know, um, CRN recently hosted a town hall, you know, which explained, you know, why it believes that S4090 is not pre-market approval. You know, it also explains that CRN would not have agreed to any hints of a pre-market approval um, when discussing the bill with Senator Durbin. Um, now, you mentioned the user fee um, legislation. Um, the House um, released one a few weeks back, had no mention of um, MPLs. Um, the new Senate bill, the FDA Safety and Landmark Advancement Act, does. Now, can you comment on you know how similar, dissimilar the proposal included in that bill is to S forty ninety, and whether you're happy with its inclusion? Um, yeah. So the uh, the the Senate committee, the Senate Health Committee, which is where the the user fee uh, legislation uh, comes out of. Uh, of course, they have included uh, their own language uh, in here. And, and that's an interesting point to note because, you know, I know there are some parts of the uh, industry who are, are spinning this narrative that uh, the, the sponsors of 4090 are backtracking because, you know, there are things that were in 4090 that aren't in the, the committee bill. Actually, the committee bill is evidence of the fact that they are not working together. You know, Senator uh, Durbin is not on the Senate Health Committee. So he's been developing his legislation on, along one track, the Senate Health Committee, because of the pressure FDA is putting on uh, Congress to, to enact something, uh, has been working on its own language. And so these two uh, pieces of legislation have now bubbled up at the same time. Uh, we've done a pretty extensive side-by-side -side of the two bills, uh, and we've looked at where they're similar, where they're different. Uh, we actually prefer uh, Senator Durbin's version of the bill, although again, it is not perfect at this point. It is still a work in progress. Uh, so, you know, our uh, our uh, response to the uh, the Senate Health Committee uh, when they put out their and again, it's called a discussion draft, uh, and they're asking for feedback. You know, we're going to be recommending that the committee look very carefully at Senator Durbin's bill, uh, with the possibility of taking that and substituting it in to that, uh, what's basically now is just a marker uh, in the, the much bigger user fee bill, but to use his language with, again, some additional refinements. And Steve, I have a question about, you know, CRN has described how um, 
you guys have been at the table and just been privy to a lot of discussion with Senator Durbin as this bill is being drafted, was able to give, you know, the association's opinions about, you know, what would be good to include in the bill, not to include in the bill. I don't know if you can answer this, but, you know, there are some other associations in the industry who may not have been at the table. I don't know if like some of the opposition to this is because they weren't in there or, you know, my question is one, do you feel like CR1 was the primary association that was present during this, these discussions? And do you think for any reason, you know, maybe for whatever reason, those other groups may not have been that they are surprised or that that's maybe playing a role in their opposition today? Well, Jen, you know, despite what they may be saying publicly, the other associations have known about this uh, for quite some time. We've been telling the other associations that, you know, that, that this is moving forward and that there's legislation in the works. Uh, and they've all had a chance to come to the table uh, and work with Senator Durbin and Senator Braun and the Senate Health Committee as well. Uh, so it's it's a matter of whether you, uh, you take the invitation that's there or, you know, if you if you burn your bridges and you refuse to to sit down in good faith and negotiate something, uh, well, then you don't get invited back. But as long as you show a credible uh, effort uh, to move something forward and, and you try to work towards a common goal, uh, you keep getting invited back to the table. And I think that's what CRN has done. You know, we we have the position of being uh, uh, the largest trade association in terms of uh our staff, uh, the, the, the products that we re uh, represent, represent you know, well over a majority of the industry. Uh, and we have the credibility on Capitol Hill that, that they invite us to keep coming back. So I, I don't think the others can say they were surprised by this at all. You have, uh, you know, in your own words, you said, you know, the Durban bill isn't perfect, right? It's not, there, there can be work done to improve it, to refine it. Um, but on its face, in terms of those who would say, you know, they fear that it is suggesting FDA would have the power for pre-market approval. You know, what assurances does CRN have that this bill will not somehow lead to a pre-market approval power for FDA? Yeah, well, well, we know from the beginning of the conversation uh, that we were very clear with all of the other parties that were uh, part of the discussion that for us, anything that allowed FDA to reject a label that they did not like was a non-starter and that we would leave the discussion if that was where the bill was going. You know, and thus our, our mantra, a birth certificate, not a driver's license. Uh, we think that the bill is pretty clear. There's nothing in there that allows FDA to reject a label that it doesn't like. But as I said, you know, it's still a work in progress. Uh, we are listening to what we are hearing from some of the other uh, voices in the industry uh, and seeking further clarification in the bill uh, that will spell out in very express terms that FDA cannot reject a label. But, but we think even as it exists now, there is nothing in that legislation that would allow FDA uh, to reject a label, even if it had something like N-acetylcysteine uh, in the product. Uh, if, if you present the uh, label to the agency, they are required to put it in the registry. Uh, and interesting, you know, if you see uh, Dr. Cohen's recent uh, op-ed piece, uh, he acknowledges that too. And in fact, uh, he sees that as a, a flaw in the bill, but he acknowledges that that is exactly what the legislation does. 
we don't think that's a flaw. We think that is uh, really goes to the heart of what the registry is about. It is not about creating an honor roll of the best products in the industry. It's about giving our regulators visibility into the industry. And to do that, they have to accept things that they may not like. But once they agree to that ground rule, then they get visibility and they are free to go and enforce against any product that's in there uh, using their other existing authority. They just can't use the, the uh, registry uh, as, a, as a weapon to keep a product out and then prosecute the company because they're not in the registry. Because along that line, you know, can, even if they're allowed in the registry, um, you know, what about people who do have N-acetylcysteine and CBD in their products? And they're afraid that if once they, once they register their product, they'll be kind of uh, subject to immediate, immediate uh, regulation or uh, some kind of um, enforcement action. You know, what do you say to those parties that, you know, may be nervous about putting themselves out there in that way? You know, I guess if you are concerned about the legality of your product, you're already concerned about the legality of your product. Uh, and you make a business decision to take that risk and go to market anyway, uh, because you think you have the, either the legal or the scientific arguments that you can defend, defend the product. But you shouldn't be able to hide in the corners, the dark corners of the industry, if you're doing that. Uh, you know, this is all about giving transparency to our marketplace, which is something that we that neither FDA nor consumers have right now. I would say if you are putting a product in the marketplace, you should be prepared to defend the legality of the product uh, already. Uh, and you should be proud to have it in a registry. And if FDA does come after you, you should be prepared to defend it. Uh, you know, the interesting thing here is, for many of these products now, FDA could eventually find you if they wanted to because they could do a Google search or they could go on to Amazon uh, and look there or they could go to the ODS uh, database, which is voluntary, not mandatory. But, you know, so it's not like you can hide forever. But, but what the listing says is, as an industry, we are proud to stand up and put our labels in here. We're not hiding from the agency uh, and, and we're willing to defend uh, why we why we are putting this product out there for consumers to use. Steve, FDA has said there's a need to modernize dietary supplement regulations, and some industry stakeholders have agreed, um, you know, in recent years. So for now, let's put mandatory product listing aside. Now, outside of mandatory product listing, what are the biggest changes you think you think we should focus on for modern modernizing dietary supplement regulations, if at all? You know, is mandatory product listing just part of the improvement that is needed? Absolutely. Mandatory listing is just one of, of several uh, items that CRN is pursuing. Our board of directors approved uh, uh, a six-point wish list uh, at our most recent uh, board meeting uh, in March. Uh, it also includes uh, revisions to the drug preclusion provision uh, you know, that's that section in the definition that prohibits uh, uh, bringing up a, a supplement to market if the article's already been used in a drug. It's been used against the industry on CBD. It's been used against us on N-acetylcysteine. Uh, and we believe that uh, it's being improperly applied 
uh, because of the way the agency goes back and can you know, reach back to the 1960s to find a, uh, an approval for something, or they can find an approval for something that was uh, inhaled and say, well, now that applies to ingested products, or in the case of CBD, uh, a dosage that is uh, you know, 10 times or, or more greater than what the dosage would be at the supplement level. So, so that's certainly one of the things that we think needs to be addressed is some clarification around drug preclusion. We'd also like to see some things around uh, expanding FDA's uh, ability to do inspections uh, and perhaps to seek out uh, third parties who are doing audits now of, of facilities uh, and, and use those audits as a way to inform the agency and to help it set priorities. You know, if you're going through an annual audit by USP or UL or NSF or Eurofens or one of those companies uh, that's very reputable uh, and certifying your GMP compliance, uh, that ought to be able to be shared with the FDA and, and that should lower your priority then for FDA to come by if one of these very reputable groups is already uh, doing it. Uh, several other things on our list, but the last one I'll mention here is uh, the, the idea of scientific studies. Uh, you know, Deshay was written really before uh, the internet took off uh, and it talks about the, the ability to have objective scientific research around a product, but it cannot be within a certain physical proximity of the product. Uh, they were envisioning these reading rooms that you know, the traditional retailers had, and they had to be a certain, you know, certain distance from the products themselves. Well, the internet changed all that. We don't have physical proximity anymore. And we'd like to see some revisions to that language so that our, you know, our member companies and others in the industry can put up these very rigorous scientific uh, trials that they're doing, uh, as long as they put them up in an objective way and that they've been peer reviewed, uh, they ought to be able to put them on their websites uh, and not uh, have FDA use that against them to say that you're intending to market your product as a drug. Gosh, I, 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 a reading room sure sounds good to me right now. <laughs> That's a little about, antiquated today though, right? Yeah, very relaxing. Now, Steve, what about CRN membership? Um, would you say that there is fairly unanimous support or at least pretty broad support among your membership for creating a mandatory product listing database? I know you recently had your um, your uh, your town hall. Um, did that really ease a lot of concerns among your membership? We got a lot of positive feedback uh, after we did that town hall because uh, we did you know, take on many of the, the arguments that uh, you know, really are are red herrings or straw men that have been set up uh, that really don't hold up. And we took them and we refuted those arguments uh, to explain why, why we're moving forward. But I guess the other thing I would really wanna stress here is your CRN uh, takes great pride in the fact that we run our trade association according to best practices. And we, we run our trade association where the membership really dictates direction, policy, mission, of the organization. So the decisions we make are not made by the staff here in Washington, DC. They're made by our members, our board of directors uh, and our committees. Every step of the way on mandatory listing as with any of our policy uh, initiatives, they started at the committee level, they percolated up to the, the board. Uh, in the case of mandatory listing, the board has debated this on several occasions as we've inched closer and closer to actual language. Uh, and we're very comfortable that our membership is on board. Now, I can't tell you that it's unanimous, um, but what I can say is that I am not hearing any vocal opposition from our membership about the positions we're taking because we have included them in this process from the beginning. We have sought their opinions. We've asked them, 
how to make things better. You know, even to this most recent version of the, the two battling bills, uh, we sent out our side-by-side -side to our members uh, and asked them, you know, what do you think we should be supporting in one versus the other? And that informed the, the submission that we're gonna give to the health committee. So I'm very comfortable that, that our positions are widely supported by the membership. Perfect. Well, Steve, we look forward to seeing more comment coming out of CRN. And, you know, we know this is a very developing topic. So we appreciate you sharing your opinions with our audience and just being with us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. After concluding our interview with Steve Mister, we continued to speak and he offered additional commentary that address specific criticisms to MPLs levied by other trade associations, um, specifically with regard to the cost to um, industry stakeholders, and the idea that a mandatory product listing will make the dietary supplement industry more vulnerable to bioterrorists. We therefore wanted to include this commentary in the podcast episode, and Steve Mister gave us permission to do so. What follows are his comments. Thank you. But we're also seeing things about, oh, it's so burdensome to the industry, and it's going to cost people a gazillion dollars. You know, we've been doing the Supplement Owl for three and a half years. We require more information in the Supplement Owl than either the Durban bill or the uh, the health committee bill. And we have companies of all sizes uh, that are participating in the AL. Many of them are not even our members. We have a lot of non-members who wanted to be in the AL and we let them in. You know, it's not, there's no charge to be in there. So we're very confident that companies of all sizes can comply without this breaking the bank. And I just think that argument, it's an easy straw man to put up, oh, it's too burdensome, it's too expensive. We know from our experience, that's one of the reasons we did the supplement out, that it does work. And then the last thing is one of our friends uh, in another association is putting out all of this, uh, you know, uh, grassroots stuff that it's going to, you know, weaken bioterrorism and it's going to open up our companies to attacks by bioterrorists. That simply is not true. We've talked to several experts in bioterrorism. Uh, and I'm hoping I'm going to have a statement that I can actually attribute to one of them very soon. Uh, they say there is no appreciable difference here because what's being asked for is already on the label and already in all of these other registries like the ODS registry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if a, if a bioterrorist was trying to figure out how to intentionally adulterate the supplement supply chain, they already have access to that information. So having a, an FDA registry is not giving any appreciable increase in the risk from what they can already do because they could just go on Amazon or somewhere and find out the name of the company or you know what's the, the contact address for the company. Next up, we're talking to Duffy Mackay. Senior Vice President of Dietary Supplements at the Consumer Healthcare Products Association. This interview will conclude part one of our discussion on mandatory product listings.
Next, we're talking to Duffy Mackay, Senior Vice President of Dietary Supplements at the Consumer Healthcare Products Association. Thanks so much for joining us today, Duffy. Thank you, Jennifer. And thank you, Sebastian. You're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. So Duffy, uh, CHPA has said that it's not necessarily opposed to mandatory product listing, but has also said that it believes that other more important reforms should be prioritized um, in terms of modernizing dietary supplement regulations. Um, I wonder if we could start with, you know, you discussing some of your other, some of the other priorities you think should maybe take precedent before mandatory product listings. Thanks, Sebastian. So as you know, the dietary supplement marketplace has grown tremendously over the, uh, let's say, past couple decades, you know, both the size and scope and sophistication of the market. And FDA really has been outpaced in its ability to regulate this growing marketplace. And so CHPA has been really advocating for modernizing uh, supplement regulations in order to really increase product integrity, product safety, as well as industry transparency. And so mandatory product listing has been, we support it in concept as a big component of transparency, both towards FDA, the consumers and healthcare practitioners, but it doesn't address the issues of product integrity and product safety. So it's not, it's on equal footing. And what we're looking for is a more comprehensive modernization of dietary supplement regulations, changes that would do things, important things like fill inspection gaps. As we know, FDA is not currently inspecting enough facilities every year. And that would do so much if we knew that qualified people were in these facilities ensuring that processes and trainings were, were, were aligned with high product integrity, high product safety. And so <clears throat> one of the more important provisions we've been advocating for is the idea that FDA could authorize third parties to conduct GMP audits. You know, NSF conducts about a thousand GMP audits a year and they have audit reports and data on facilities that could be shared with the agency to really open up uh, an eye into what's taking place in industry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so Duffy, back to mandatory product listing, you know, what does CHPA think of S4090? Specifically, were there any areas of the bill's text that concern CHPA? You know, we know that some people, uh, some organizations are concerned that it's akin to pre-market approval. Um, But what did CHPA feel about that? Well, mandatory product listing is simply pre-market awareness. It's giving regulators an awareness of which products and which ingredients are entering the market and who is responsible for them. And so that's where it stops. So SB 4090 Um, While maybe all the language is not perfect, we know that legislation is like making sausage and, you know, there's multiple stakeholders involved. And so once again, CHPA is overarchingly supportive of the idea that this industry, like any regulated health product industry, a cornerstone of that regulation is the regulator knowing what products and what ingredients it's responsible for as well as if products and ingredients don't fit inside of that, being able to prioritize those and make sure that that's not what consumers are considering and reaching to when they are looking for dietary supplements. And so um, I am not in federal government affairs. We have experts, Mark Schloss, David Spangler, 
And they are actively engaged in the details of how do we get this language correct so that it aligns with the intent of transparency and it doesn't have overreach and it isn't, you know, essentially a nothing burger. Duffy, you know, uh, some of the opponents to S4090 that we talked to, you know, one of their points is, you know, it doesn't specifically say, you know, the language isn't specific enough to say that FDA can't use this as a tool, you know, to, you know, keep products off of the market. Like, is when you talk about some of the refinements that can be made to the uh, to the language, do you know if that's sort of along the lines of what you're you mean that like being more specific or I don't know if this is something more in the regulatory realm. Well, but my, my listening to the, to the people who are fighting against this is that they don't want anything. They don't want any changes. They think the status quo is, is what we need. And that, that is just not amenable. It's not future forward looking. We have a, a marketplace that is increasingly growing. Consumers and healthcare providers are increasingly seeing these as legitimate parts of the healthcare conversation. We have doctors testing for vitamin D. And occasionally you'll see these articles that say, I'm a physician. When I recommend vitamin D, should I only recommend the prescription one? Or am I safe to send my patients to the drugstore to buy vitamin D? And in their mind, there's this question mark about product integrity and safety. And we need to remove that question mark. We need to give insurances that these are products that are made, they're ingredients that belong in the industry and they're products that are made to the standard. And so, <clears throat> you know, very simply, product listing is not new and it's not scary. Companies are doing it right now to be in international marketplaces. So we have very successful dietary supplement companies that are listing their products in places like Canada and Australia, very successful marketplaces. In fact, I actually remember very about in 2013, Durbin introduced a similar bill that included product listing. And I was at a, a trade association conference with a lot of executives and CEOs, top level. And I remember very clearly when one of the CEOs, and we were having the, almost the identical debate in 2013. You know, we're almost, you know, seven, eight years later, and we're still having the same debate of whether this industry will benefit from a mandatory product listing. And at the time, there was a very influential Canadian CEO who grabbed the microphone during a Q&A and he said, I'm in Canada and we have a much more rigorous regulatory structure that requires, you know, the regulator to know what products and ingredients on the market. And it's wonderful. It's great. It fosters success. It keeps the bad actors out. I don't know what all you guys are so scared of. And that was really telling to me. To have somebody who is in multiple marketplaces identify that things like product listing and having a strong regulator were beneficial to real science-based responsible companies. And really what it challenges is, is people who are riding the gray areas and people who are trying to be ankle biters with, with semi-legal ingredients, et cetera. Those are the people who are worried about mandatory product listing, in my opinion. Um, so we have supplement companies already engaged in listing. And we also have over-the-counter medicines and homeopathic products that go through a listing process. This has been going on for decades and there has been no FDA overreach. 
These categories of products are trusted by healthcare providers and consumers, as well as retailers. One of the side effects of the current marketplace is retailers are scrambling to understand who is the legitimate marketplace. And they've put in place all of these retailer quality assurance programs. And they're all different. CVS has one, Walgreens has one, Amazon has one, and they're all different. And so as a manufacturer, you're having to comply with these different standards they cost money, those costs get passed on to the consumer, and it's all at the root of it is we don't have enough assurances and transparencies. Duffy, you know, you touched on those, uh, some of those other listing requirements for other industries, you know, over-the-counter drugs or homeopathics. Was there ever any, of, to your knowledge, has there any ever been any concern that, you know, those listing schemes would lead to pre-market approval or like is it common to hear many of the same fears that people are addressing right now that they are proposing mandatory product listing for supplements is this kind of the the fears and the arguments that always happen anytime you bring up the topic of a mandatory listing no matter which industry well with mature listings that are committed to their consumer and they 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 own the fact that they need to be providing compliant products that are safe. They have no problem participating in these databases, you know, whether it be OTC meds, homeopathic products. And again, I'm, these markets are very successful. And in fact, you know, the National Institutes of Health manages a lot of the information for these labels for um, daily meds is, is where the over-the-counter products go. And they aren't even a regulatory body. This is just about a listing. And so it's just about creating a library of information about this marketplace so that, that the regulator, as well as the, the, the clinical community, as well as the consumers can understand what, what is the dietary supplement marketplace. We don't even know where the edges of this market are. Um, we have lots of, um, you know, estimates at 50,000 or 80,000 products. And, and it's really difficult. I mean, it, it's difficult I mean, imagine you or I, if your job was, hey, you're, you're responsible for protecting the public health of millions of Americans that consume these products, but we don't actually know which products we're talking about. So go ahead and protect the American public, you know? And so it's hard for them to prioritize where there is real public health risk when they can't have visibility into the marketplace. And I know a lot of people says, well, Google, and you can go online, but a real tool is a systematic and complete tool. People are required to put the information in. This is a complete picture of the, of the industry. If you're not in here, you're not part of the industry. So that's already, you know, it's a uh, misbranded product. So that gives an easy out for anyone who doesn't want to participate. Now, once we have all this information in one place, we can look for things like ingredients we don't recognize and we can call or go inspect and say, you know, We've never heard of this ingredient. Can you show us your evidence that it's safe? You know, we've tested your product and it's and it's not meeting label claim. We'd like to inspect your facility. You know, these are the types of things that that we would like to see take place in the future. In terms of your membership, obviously you have a very diverse membership, but in terms of dietary supplement. Um, has there been a lot of concerns about, among your membership about this legislation and what it could bring? Um, or is there overall 
support for it. What well, would you say is the consensus there? CHPA has long been advocating for modernizing supplement regulations, including adding a mandatory product listing. We're on record years ago. We were one of the first organizations that really stepped up and say, this is good for industry. We've had numbers of meetings, roundtable meetings with members, and no one has spoke up against the concept of providing the regulator with your, your, your label information, your ingredient information, et cetera. You know, we do have conversations about the specifics, you know, legislative language is very wonky and confusing. And so a lot of people, they look at every single word and you try to consider every single potential outcome. So with the current bill language, yes, there's lots of discussions. How can we fix it? How can we make it better? How can we make it align more with the intent of transparency? Um, so that's more the conversation, technical in nature, but no one has spoke up and said, we got to stop this. This is terrible for industry. Everyone, you know, there's, if you are a responsible dietary supplement manufacturer, you should want mandatory product listing. There's no doubt about that. Every good regulatory paradigm includes an understanding of what products and what ingredients are being regulated. Duffy, have you, you know, people may not, maybe membership doesn't, you know, they support the concept. Has anybody talked about or been opposed to the burden in terms of cost maybe or you know time or resources it would cost industry or has that been you know decided it's, it's fully worth it well most CR chpa members are already engaged in some form of listing of their products whether it be through the nih dietary supplement label database they've become a very accustomed to working with the therapeutic research center providing labels through manufacturers direct and that's just become operational at this point. Um, again, many CHPA members are both in the over-the-counter medicine as well as dietary supplement arena. So they're registering their products for in those cases, as well as many CHPA members are international, have international footprints. And so they have people that are accustomed to doing international uh, listings. And in some countries, it's even more rigorous, you know, registration, which is not what we're talking about, you know, and so I'm seeing a little bit of playing with words when, you know, the people are trying to drum up a bunch of fear, let's stop this thing, it's the end of the world. Um, and there's a very distinct difference between listing, registration, and pre-market approval. And these are think tools that regulators have been using forever, right? So listing is a notification process. You provide the information and that gives you the permission to go. And the regulator now has the information to react to. Registration is you provide the information and you wait until you get your sticker, your stamp, your signed document, your number. That's more rigorous, right? Someone on the regulatory side is reviewing and approving. We have not in any of the bill language, there's no review and approve part of the language because that would be registration. And then of course we have pre-market approval and pre-market approval has been around for a long, long time. And we know what that is. It's for prescription drugs and there's the phase one, two studies. There's the IND submission. It's a very prescriptive long process and rightly so because these are life-saving medicines that treat, prevent and cure disease. And therefore it's real, um, a little bit of a play on words to say, you know, start to mix up these categories. These are well-known categories and mechanisms that regulators use. So Duffy, you know, we talked about 
one of the words, now we're talking about words that we hear, um, a lot of the, some of the words that we hear repeated for critics of the supplement industry is that supplements are not regulated. Do you think that if a mandatory product listing is in place, it will make it more difficult for those critics to say this industry is not as regulated? And if so, why or why not? Well, what's interesting, I think a lot of people just weren't really paying attention to to supplements in 1994 when DSHEA was passed. And so they're not as familiar with the fact that we have a law and we have a regulator and supplements are regulated for, as we know, you know, which ingredients can go in there, inspections, uh, post-market surveillance, all of that as part of it. So it's really just, um, you know, a lack of understanding the space when you say that we both know that. And, and you know, for example, uh, we just saw the American Medical Association put out a series of articles. Some were actually pretty good, but the title of it was Unregulated Supplement Industry. And so CHPA wrote the ed- editors and said, how can this be unregulated if there's a division at the FDA or an office at the FDA where it's responsible for this? And they quickly realized how wrong they were. And I said, you guys are a medical journal. You can't be factually incorrect. And they were easy. They said, okay, well, you're underregulated then that's an opinion, you know, that's their opinion, they're entitled to their opinion, but at least they got the fact right. Um, So I do think that a mandatory product listing will be a major step for awareness of that we are regulated by FDA. You know, if if this is a publicly facing, um, I guess, electronic database, most likely, I just, just the cognitively people will be like, oh, these products are regulated. Um, but that's a double-edged sword, Jennifer, because without additional inspections, without something that can assure us of higher levels of product integrity and safety, there's the possibility that this becomes a false sense of, you know, these products are awesome. And that, that is our, our colleague and strong critic of the industry, Dr. Peter Cohen's opinion. You know, he says, well, wait a minute, if you do database without these other things, you're not improving the industry, but you're, out, you're giving this false sense that, that there's a rubber stamp that FDA has seen these products. And so I think it's, a, it's, it's really why a more comprehensive reform is so important. And, and we need all the pieces put together to modernize. I mean, the, the industry's modernized, it's bigger, our products are more sophisticated. So we just need to be, have better tools um, to, to keep the guardrails safe. Absolutely. And is this a case of like one step at a time? So maybe first mandatory that, product listing? Then- you know, unfortunately, part of what the, when you hear, you know, we have a lot of voices in the industry and, and they're not all marching to the same drum right now. And a little bit of that is, this disagreement of, should we work on this incrementally? Should we get mandatory product listing now and something after and something after, or do we wait and get a comprehensive package and push that through it? So there's some disagreement about what is the most efficient way to get to where we wanna go. And, um, and then there's those people who say, no, we don't want anything. We just want status quo. This industry is great as it is. We don't have any problems and, uh, you know, I think, I think that's ignoring the fact that retailers have to put in programs to assure them that they're buying legitimate and high quality pure products. You know, that doesn't happen in other industries. Retailers don't feel like there's a gap where they have to add a layer to it for over-the-counter medicines. And so 
status quo is status quo. I think we will, we will, we, you know, let me flip it over. A lot of people feel like that as science evolves, as we get more legitimate, as we have ingredients like omega-3s and vitamin D and probiotics, that we have the potential to play a larger role in the healthcare conversations. We have a potential to have our products be more of a mainstream part of prevention and wellness accepted broadly by physicians. We won't get there with a the status quo. We need better assurances of transparency, product integrity and product safety if we wanna be accepted by the healthcare systems of America to be part of the healthcare solution. I guess to close, um, you know, Congress is sort of a mess. So, you know, when you're thinking about legislation, it seems like it's a very daunting task to pass a piece of legislation, especially something like this, um, asking for more regulation or for, uh, for an industry. But, you know, when you th talk about its inclusion in the FDA user fee registra um, registration, um, by the Senate, for example, in their FDA Safety and Landmark Advancement Act. Um, do you think that has a fair chance of passing in that respect? Or do you think there's still going to be a lot of debate internally in Congress um, about the language of that bill? Um, yeah, what's your opinion on that? Well, CHPA is really kind of laser focused on, on some comprehensive reform. So we want the mandatory product listing. We want third-party GMP inspections. We have some other things that we think would improve the marketplace. And that, that's the football we're trying to carry down the um, field. We have legislation in play right now. So our, our legislative experts are engaged in trying to make that legislation align with its intent. But again, I'm not, you know, as, as they say, you know, Thing, you just mentioned it, Sebastian. The Hill is a very confusing and volatile place. There's a lot of bipartisan. So it's way above my pay grade to make predictions in what happens on Capitol Hill. My role is to really understand the supplement marketplace. You know, I've worked in industry for a long time. I've worked on the trade association for a long time. I was a clinician who dispensed these products. And so I have just a, a real love for rational policies that will help us raise the bar of this industry and get to where we want to go. I get up on the hill and I see how all the sausage is made and I just sort of stay quiet. So no predictions for me on that one. Fair enough, Duffy. Uh, thanks so much for uh, sharing your thoughts and joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Always a pleasure to work with you guys. Uh, enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Thank you too. Bye. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed part one of our conversation with industry trade association leaders on the recent legislative efforts to pass a mandatory product listing for dietary supplements. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines and provide expert insights from industry leaders. Remember, you can always follow our continued coverage on this topic at NutritionalOutlook.com and on the social media platforms LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NutritionalO. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of Nutritional Outlook, its parent company, or advertisers. For editorial questions, please email Editor-in-Chief Jennifer Grebo at jgrebo at mghlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mghlifesciences.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.